Esther chapter 9. Several of our holidays here in Australia are intended to be memorials. When we think of a memorial, we think of a time of remembering things in the past. For example, Australia Day is a memorial of the 26th of January that marked the uh, the time in 1788 when the first fleet landed here in Australia. It's a memorial. We also have the memorial of Anzac Day uh, that commemorates all those who have died in battle down through the years in defense and protection of our nation. A very important thing to us, for us to remember. Then, of course, we have two major Christmas holidays, of Christ, sorry, Christian holidays, Christmas and Easter, uh, that are both memorials, remembering Christ's birth at Christmas time, remembering his resurrection at Easter, both of them very important days of memorial. And many times we find that holidays tend to be a time of, I got a day off, I can have a fun time with the family, relax, and, re- and we don't even take often much time to reflect. And that's what memorials are for. They're to remind us of things that have happened in the past. And as we come to chapter 9 in Esther, we are going to be introduced to a memorial holiday that Esther and Mordecai put forward. They called it Purim. And Purim was a holiday to remember all that God had done to protect them during this time that is described in the book of Esther. Really, there's a sense in which the entire book of Esther is the memorial of Purim. Tells us all about what was taking place. And as we look at this this morning, it's good for us to reflect and and note the things that they were remembering, and it's a good reminder for us in our memorials to Set aside time to genuinely remember things that need to be remembered. Now, some of our holidays maybe are more trivial, but there's some that are significant, as we mentioned, especially the religious holidays. Good things for us to remember. And as we look at Esther chapters 9 and 10, we learn several facts about Purim that serve as excellent reminders for us. Notice, first of all, that Purim was... A time of rest. We find that it was a time of rest. We begin in verse number 1, and it says, In the twelfth month, uh, that is the month Adar, in the thirteenth day of the same, the king commanded and his decree drew near to put to an execution in the day of the, uh, that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. The Jews gathered themselves together in the cities throughout all of the provinces of King Hazarwurst. Remember, that was 127 provinces all over the major world at that time. Um, and uh, to lay hand on such as sought their hurt, and no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon the people. And all the rulers of the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell on them. And Mordecai was great 
uh, in the king's house. And his fame went throughout all the provinces, for this man Mordecai waxed greater and greater. All right, now as we just begin this chapter, he's telling us what is taking place here. We come to the climax. The day has come. The day that the Jews had fretted about and feared for, ye- for months has finally come. It's the 13th day of Adar, the last month of the year. And on that day, they were to defend themselves against their enemies. Prior to that, Haman had set it up so that on that day, all the enemies of the Jews could wipe out the Jews, and they were commanded to wipe out the Jews. If you knew a Jew, you were to kill him. Wipe out the Jews, exterminate all of them, get rid of them all. And then, of course, Esther intervened. Mordecai came on the scene. The two of them wrote their their, uh, document that we looked at last week to protect and defend the Jews. And now the Jews enact this. They gather themselves together to protect themselves. Now, the the Jews were, were <clears throat> their enemies were now dead. They were protected. God had given them this protection. And the, the Jews had gathered themselves together. We see in verse number 2 there that they gathered themselves together. That was one of the things he told them back in Chapter 8, verse 11, he said they were to gather themselves, they were to stand for their life, they were to destroy their, and to slay and to perish all of their, those who would assault them. All right? So now they did that, they gathered themselves together, and it says that nobody withstood them because the fear of them fell upon them. You can't help but see that God was involved in this. God caused the Jews to be feared by all the people of the nations that hated them. And they were afraid of them. Not only that, but we see here that in verse number 3, that the rulers of the provinces and all the lieutenants and the deputies and the officers, they all helped them, Jews, because they were afraid of, the, of Mordecai. The fear of Mordecai fell on them. Now, Mordecai wasn't a big tyrant. He wasn't someone that was just, you do it my way or you're dead. What type of a guy? He was well-liked by everybody, but they had a fearful respect for Mordecai. And they said, Mordecai said this is the way it's supposed to be. We are going to side with Mordecai because Mordecai is a good guy. And we fear him. We're going to do what he's told us to do. And so all those leaders of the nation were also helping the Jews. So the people that were out to get them, they were fearful. And the people, the rulers were helping them. And so they were able to overcome. And Mordecai, we see here in verse 4, was great in the king's house. And his fame went out through all the provinces. Mordecai waxed greater and greater. He was a great man. We see down in verse number 5 that thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction and did that uh, what they would unto those that hated them. And in Shushan the palace, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men. Now remember, the Jews were just not out there looking for blood. They weren't out there just... Uh, saying, you know that guy down the street, I've never liked him for years. Let's go get rid of him today. Here's our opportunity. It wasn't that. It was people that were out together. Remember that we saw there in verse number uh, 11 of verse number of chapter 8 that it was those that would assault them. These who were their enemies, they were out to get them, were plotting to kill them. Those who were planning on destroying the Jews, they had made known, we hate those Jews. We're going to get rid of them. And God says, I want you to wipe out those kind of people because they're the ones that are destroying these people. Uh, they're, they're out to destroy the Jews. So they were to wipe them out. And they did. They, they killed 500 in Shushan, the palace. They also, in verses 7 to 10, they killed the 10 sons of Haman. 
and I'll let you read all their names and pronounce them. Some of them are kind of tricky to say the least. But uh, the, these are the ten sons of Haman. They all died that day. And the, uh, verse 11, it says, on, the, on that day, the number of those that were slain in Shushan the palace was brought before the king. All right, so all these things took place here. In Shushan, there was uh, 500 killed. We see down in verse number 16, there were 75,000 killed in other places around the provinces. And remember, this is a huge country. All right, went from every, all the way over to uh, Ethiopia and north up into Turkey and on over and all the way over to the east to uh, the edge of India. It covered a vast area. And 75,000 enemies of the Jews were killed in those areas uh, because of their opposition to the Jews. Now, today, evil seems to be prevailing all around us. But uh, those who choose to live evil lives contrary to God must remember that judgment day is coming. Judgment day is coming. You know, we live in a world and we think, you know, why is there so much evil in our world? Why are there so, you know, there are people that are threatened by evil. There's all kinds of evil even in our own area here that is coming out more and more of the, the promotion of evil and homosexuality and, and ungodliness and all these things are promoted and becoming more and more common and so much so that they have rights and we don't have any rights and they want to quash those who want to believe in the Lord and follow the Lord. And it gives people a hard time. There's all kinds of problems in these areas. We see all this, but the day is coming. Judgment is coming. And God tells us that very clearly, that he will deal with things one day. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3 tells us, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. God sees it all. And when you feel like, you know, this isn't just, this isn't right, somebody should do something about that, God's watching it, God sees it, God's not overlooking it, and God will deal with it. Solomon also tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. God says the day's coming. Every secret thing is going to be brought out in the open. I'm going to deal with it properly. You know, that is a comfort to us. Paul comforted the Thessalonian believers there in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9, when he says that in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not the Lord and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day's coming. God's going to pour out judgment upon those who reject him as their Savior. Nobody can hide from God. God's going to deal with things fairly and squarely. But after months of fear, the Jews could now rest. For 11 months, they lived in fear and terror and wonder. What was going to happen? How are we going to escape? How, we can't even flee the country if we try to leave. The, country is full. the whole nation was full of this rule. They'd have to leave the nation and move out of the whole area, move down into Ethiopia or move over into India or something to try to escape. It was virtually impossible. They lived in fear. The thought of being exterminated was terrifying. And they fasted and prayed 
often during that time. Notice down something that I found as I studied through this today, down in verse number 31, or not today, this week. Verse 31 says, To confirm those days of Purim in, the time, uh, in their times appointed according to as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them, and as they had decreed for themselves and for their seed, notice this last phrase, the matters of the fastings and their cry. And I thought, hey, their cry. I looked at the word cry, and it means to cry for help. To whom were they crying for help? Well, to God. And even though the book doesn't mention prayer, it doesn't mention God, it's obvious these Jews were crying to God for help. They weren't crying to some idol or something else. They were crying to God for help. And God intervened for them. And God brought them back and to a closer relationship with him. You know, I, I, I can't help but see here that it, was, it must have been a time of revival for them as they were praying and seeking God's help. You know, their human nature, like ours, is prone to worry. And if we got news that we were all going to be wiped out, you know, every Christian in Australia was going to be killed at the end of the year. And there's nothing you could do about it. You know, our, our human nature would say, <laughs> that's kind of concerning. What are we going to do? And we'd fret and worry unless we trust the Lord in it. And that's what we need. These Jews, they came to the Lord. It was a time of revival. They spent time in prayer. They spent time in fasting. And God brought them together and drew them close to him. You know, this could be the time when the Jews actually really turned back to God like they should have turned. Because you stop and think about it. Under the preaching of Jeremiah, before they went into captivity, they mocked him and laughed at him and wanted to kill him. Under the preaching of Ezekiel, after they went into captivity, Ezekiel was one of them in captivity. He preached to them and warned them and, and, and urged them to come back to God. They ignored him as well. They weren't listening. Daniel, no doubt, had some influence on the people. He was more of a political leader than a preacher, but he was a godly influence on them there in Babylon. But the people as a whole had still their ties with idolatry. That's why God sent them into captivity. Because remember, there in the book of Ezekiel, God showed Ezekiel all the secret things that the people were doing. Terrible things. Worshipping the sun. Worshipping all kinds of idols. And killing their babies to the idols. All kinds of terrible things that they were doing here. And God saw all that. What turned their hearts back to God? Perhaps it was a time like this that really drew them back. Because already, before Esther, they had gone back, some of them went back with Zerubbabel to try to rebuild, or to start rebuilding the temple. That was before Esther. And then after Esther was Nehemiah that came along. But why didn't all the Jews say, yes, let's go back to Israel? I think a lot of them still weren't right with God. A lot of them still weren't walking with the Lord. So it could be, it could be that during this time was a revival time. God doesn't spell that out clearly, but I have an idea that might have been. They had 11 months to weep and pray and beg God for their help and their protection because they were going to be exterminated. I mean, you'd pray pretty fervently if you knew that by the end of the year you were going to be killed. There's no way around it unless God intervened. I, I think all of us would get pretty serious with God. And that's what happened here. 
Now the fearful day was over. Their enemies were dead. And they were able to rest. Verse number 16 says, But the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives and had rest from their enemies and slew them of, uh, slew of their foes 75,000 and they laid their, not their hands on their prey. Verse number 17, And on the 13th day of the month Adar and on the 14th day of the same, they rested uh, and made a day of feasting and gladness. Verse 18 again, and the Jews that were at Shushan uh, assembled together on the 13th day thereof, and on the 14th day, and on the 15th day of the same, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. There was a time of rest. Now you think about this. They were, the word rest means to be free from something, to get free, to be, get out from under something. And they had been freed. Now they're not in fear of losing their life. They're not in danger of losing their life. They could now sleep in peace. For the first time in 11 months, they could lay their head on their pillow and think, we've got nothing to worry about as far as dying. We're not going to be killed in a couple of days. It's not, it's over. God took care of it. God answered our prayer. They were at rest. They were relaxing. And they they could now go about their daily work without any fear. God had met their needs. Can you see a parallel here to our salvation? As I looked at this, I thought, you know, we are we're guilty sinners, condemned by our sin, headed for hell, no way out of it, no escape, until Jesus came and died on the cross to pay the debt for us. Offered us salvation. And when we put our faith and trust in Him, He offers us rest. Rest from fear of the judgment of our sin. And that is a wonderful truth. He gives us sweet peace and rest through knowing Christ. Notice, secondly, that Purim was a time of rejoicing. Their their emotions were relieved. Sorrow had turned to joy and mourning turned to a good day. Verse number 22 here says, and the Jews were, uh, sorry, and, and the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies and the, uh, and the month which, the turn, which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy and from mourning to a good day. They made it a day of feasting and joy and sending portions one to another and and gifts to the poor. So it was a time of relief. There was joy instead of sorrow. Their emotions it flipped upside down, or right side up, actually. They had been upside down. Now they flipped right side up. And you know, we've been through those kind of times. We've all experienced that. Sometimes in major situations, sometimes in minor ones. For example, all of us have gone through times of exam, whether it be in school, whether it be in University, and those kinds of exam are always, hope I know the material well enough. <laughs> you know, there's that stress there coming up, building up to it. The exam's over. Whew, there's rest. It's done. I passed. All right. And so there's that sense of rest after an exam. We, or maybe it's the expected bad news that turned out good. Gives us rest. Then there's the possibility of a 
A time when we have confessed a sin that has been haunting us for a long time. We got it right with God. God forgave us. And there's rest and peace. When God answers a prayer in an amazing way, there's rest. God met the need. God answered. He helped me through it. And that's the rest that these people were recognizing. It was a time where they could truly rejoice from deep down inside because God had given them rest. Rest from their enemies. Rest from their fears. Rest from all these things that they were concerned about. Purim was a time of great rejoicing. It was a time of great rejoicing. The inner joy produced benevolence in their hearts. They sent portions one to another, verse 19. These portions were very likely portions of food. People that they knew weren't as well off as they were, and they said, you know, let's take a dish down to the neighbor down there. Those Jewish friends of ours, they're so poor. They don't have hardly anything. Let's take some food down to them. And they would share with them. It said that they also uh, gave gifts to the poor. Verse 22, we saw that, that they gave gifts to the poor. And so as they're sending portions and giving gifts, these gifts were very likely some sort of material aid to be able to help those who were struggling financially. They're having a difficult time. And so they were sharing with others and providing for them. You know, it's sad that in our culture, and I think we've all experienced this, that at birthdays and Christmas, we're expected to give gifts to people. And I don't even have to ask. I'm sure that each of us have gone through times when you say, oh, i got to get a gift for that person, and I don't really know what to get them, and they don't need a thing, and I don't really want to do it, but i got to do it because that's the right thing to do. And we, just, we give out of obligation, not out of genuine passion and desire. And these people here, when they were giving... Why were they giving? They're giving out of joy. God has been so good to us. We were going to be exterminated yesterday, and we're well now. God has defeated our enemies. We're alive and well now. It's okay. They were excited, and they said, let's share this blessing with our neighbors. Let's share these. Let's give to these poor people that we know. Help them all. Just be a blessing. Why? Because giving gives us joy. Genuine giving from the heart gives us joy. The Apostle Paul wrote in Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, he said, I have showed you all things, how the soul laboring, you ought to support the weak, and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Children have a hard time understanding that. You know, how it could be more fun to give than to receive. But the older we get, we can genuinely understand that. That it is. It is much more enjoyable to give something and see someone's face light up or see a relief on their face or to see them at peace and knowing that we've been a blessing to them. Right now I'm in the middle of listening to George Mueller's autobiography. George Mueller lived many years ago, but he was a faithful preacher and a man of prayer. And he lived by faith. And he's going through and telling that, you know, day after day, he said many days they didn't have enough food to eat. And they would pray. And God would provide before the end of the day. 
And he said, you know, some people think that living like that would be such a stress. He says, actually, it's just the opposite. He says, it's not a stress because we know God's going to provide. It's just an exciting time waiting to see God provide. And day after day, God would meet the needs. Someone would give them. Someone would say, you know, I just couldn't sleep last night. I'm sorry it's so early this morning. I hope it doesn't bother you that it's early. But I couldn't sleep, and I wanted to bring you something. He said, thank you, Lord. That's exactly what we've been praying for. And there is a blessedness in giving. And the Jews experienced that. After all, Christ has done for us. We ought to give such gifts as often as we could to others. To be a blessing. Christ has been so good to us. God has met our needs. God has provided for us. God has been so good to us. We need to share with others. So Purim was a time of of rejoicing. But Purim was also a time to remember It was a time to remember. It was a memorial. And he wanted it to be a memorial that they would not forget. It was to be remembered. And they were to remember that God had caused Esther to be chosen to be queen. Remember what Mordecai said? For such a time as this. God had it all planned. God put that pretty little Jewish girl in there and made her to be the queen so that she could spare the nation and rescue them from a a wicked man who wanted to exterminate the Jews. God intervened in a blessed way. And they needed to remember that. They needed to recall all that God had done for them in answer to their prayers and their fastings. God had given grace to Esther to find favor in the eyes of the king. On at least two different occasions, she went in before the king without an invitation. Had the king not held out his golden scepter, it was death. But God gave him her favor before the king. And God caused him to hold out his scepter. They prayed about this and God answered their prayer. They had prayed about the trouble with Haman. And Haman was hanged by the king. They prayed about the the whole situation that was about them and how were they going to get out from underneath this law because once the law has been passed, you can't change the law. And God intervened and caused Mordecai to be promoted to a position that once was held by Haman. And now Mordecai is the second in the nation. And Mordecai is very powerful. And the king takes off his ring and gives it to Haman. And Haman now, or to to Mordecai. And now Mordecai has the ability to write a letter to reverse the the, um, evil that had been done by Haman. All in answer to their fastings and prayers. The king granted Esther and Mordecai permission to write that law. It was all in answer to their prayers and fasting. And God helped the Jews on that critical day and gave them victory. Even when the day came. You know, it was not, it was not a happy day. And you think about that. Anytime there's bloodshed, anytime there's battles, it's not a happy day. But if you end up the victory, there can be joy in it. But it's still not a, not a pleasant thing to have to go through. But God helped them through that. 
God helped them through that, and God protected the Jews, and all those enemies that were out to kill them were wiped out. God intervened. Why? Because they had been fasting and praying. God said, I want you to remember that. Don't forget the cost involved. Don't forget what it took. Don't forget those hours of prayer. Don't forget those times on your knees. Don't forget those times in the Word. Don't forget those times that you spent. Don't forget. Remember what it took. It didn't happen accidentally. Purim was a holiday to remember these events. It was also to be a memorial. Not just a holiday on that time. Not just there on that particular day. All right, we're going to have a couple days off here to to celebrate. No, it was a memorial. It was a time to pass on the historical facts to their generations to follow. Look at verse 28. And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And that these days Apurim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. God said, I want you and your seed. By their seed, he's talking about their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, and on and on. He said, I don't want you to forget. I don't want you to forget. You need to pass this on. Failure to pass that on would weaken the Jewish nation, and their faith in God. Now we too must pass on the facts of Scripture that God has given to us, to the next generation. You know, it's, it's not enough for our children just to have the basic Sunday school information. It's not enough. They need to know the Lord. They need to know the Scriptures. And we cannot pass on something we don't know ourselves. Pretty hard to pass on information you don't have you don't have in your own mind. I've never taken trigonometry. If I was to pass on trigonometry, I'd be helpless because I don't have a clue. I, you know, this is way over my head. I don't understand it. I don't grasp that. I wasn't a math type person. I couldn't do that. So you have to know something before you can pass it on. And so the challenge is that how well do you know the Bible? How well do you know this book? You know, the only way we're going to get to know this book isn't by putting it under your pillow and sleeping on it. But you have to spend time in it every day. And I, you know, I, I talk about that a lot. But deep down in my heart, I fear that there's some of you that don't do that. You don't spend time in the Bible every day. Or if you do, it's just enough to make yourself feel good that I read my verse for the day, so I'm okay but we need to feed our souls on this book. This book is our manual. This book is God's Word. This book is the book that will help you and strengthen you and keep you from sin and give you victory and give you strength. We need this book. We need to know this book. We need to understand this book. We need to be able to explain the book. And most of all, we need to be able to pass it on to our children and our grandchildren to pass it on. And we need to have a systematic means of trying to do that. How are we going to do that? How are we going to pass it on to our children and our grandchildren? Well, when you have opportunities to talk with them, talk about the Scriptures. You know, that's one thing that's so sad. Many homes 
when you get together with your family, talk about everything under the sun except God. It shouldn't be that way. We should talk about the Lord. And, you know, that's something that I, I, I'm not pointing the finger at you and scolding you. I, I can look in the mirror and say, yeah, there's a lot of times that I've talked to my family and haven't even brought up the Lord. That's not that we're trying to preach at them or shove something down the throat. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about it ought to be natural for us to just talk about what we've been learning. What did you learn in the scriptures this morning as you dug into the Bible or didn't you dig in? And if you didn't dig in today, did you dig in yesterday? What did you learn yesterday? And if we haven't learned something, we can't pass it on. And God tells us to pass on that information to our next generations, but also the scriptures tell us as Christians we need to be encouraging and building up each other that way. But if we won't even talk to our family that is close to us and share what we've been learning and gaining from the scripture with our family and our children and our, and our close ones, how are we going to feel comfortable about sharing that with somebody else at church? You know, it, that's probably why we don't do it. Because we, we feel uncomfortable about it. But we need to do that more often. God said, I want you to, I want it to be passed on. This needed to be a memorial. The Jews down through the years needed to know when they thought of Purim, they needed to remember Esther and Mordecai. They needed to remember the days of of fasting and prayer for those months, those 11 months as the Jews fasted and prayed and begged God for help to intervene. They needed to remember how God raised up Esther and remember how God raised up Mordecai to step in and help them and how God intervened and how God set them free and God gave them victory and God enabled them to defeat their enemies. God was a blessing to them. They needed to remember that. It was a memorial that needed to be reviewed. As we think about our salvation, we need to remember what Christ has done for us. Lord willing, in the next few weeks, I'm going to spend some time on Sunday morning going over some of the things that Christ has done for us in our salvation and explaining some of the big words that we, that deal with salvation. Propitiation, sanctification, redemption, justification, adoption. And just digging through these and trying to make them come alive to us. Not just so we can cram our heads full of information, but so that we can thank our God for what he's done for us. We need to do that. I need to do that more. In the morning when you spend time with God and you're talking with him, so many times... Our prayers are, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, Lord, i got all these problems, please give me my answers, instead of pouring out our thanks and praise to God. And we need that. We need to thank God for all that he's done for us. Thank you, Lord, for your propitiation. Thank you for what you did for me. That's amazing. And be able to consciously understand what we're talking about and thank God genuinely from the heart. So that's what I'm thinking of for the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at some of that. But, you know, we need to be thanking God for what he's done for us. Our national holidays, especially the spiritual holidays of Christmas and Easter, are times to reflect on the history of what God has done for us. Time to remember. Just like Purim was a time for the Jews to remember what God did to rescue them. 
these holidays are a time for us to remember what God has done for us. It ought to be a time of rest, rejoicing, and remembrance. If you know the Lord is your Savior, we need to do that on a daily basis. Rejoicing in the Lord and thanking Him for what He's done. But you know, with Christmas just a few weeks away, I want to challenge you. Perhaps you already do this. Perhaps you've never thought of it. But to make this Christmas a time of rest, rejoicing, and remembering of what Christ did for us when He came to this earth. We need to set aside the secular distractions of the season and place the full focus on Christ this year. There's so many secular things around us. Some of them maybe aren't evil in and of themselves. Some of them probably are. Any kind of a focus that turns the attention away from Jesus Christ and puts it upon Santa Claus or Father Christmas or something else is evil. It isn't just a poor choice. It's evil. It's turning away the attention from Christ. Remember what God said in the Old Testament about the idolatry? I, there's, I don't think there's anything in the, in, in the scriptures that God hates more than idolatry. Why did he hate idolatry? Because it was competition with him. And yet you look at our secular Christmas and there's an awful lot of competition with Jesus Christ. I challenge you to give gifts this year. Not out of obligation. Maybe there's times when we're just going to have to say, well, I know everybody expects you to take a gift, but I, I just don't, I, I don't have peace about that and I don't really have a desire to do that. Let's either not go or I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you know, sometimes maybe we need to do that. I'm not saying it's wrong. But seek to give out of a genuine heart of love. I want to give because God has been good to me. And I want to share that with others. Give with a right attitude and a right heart. One of the things that is tragic, and I think it displeases the Lord, is at Christmas time, many families go into debt to buy gifts. That's tragic. Don't go into debt to buy gifts. Keep it simple. Just do what you're able to do instead of what you what the neighbors are doing. You don't have to keep up with anybody else. Be yourself. Be what God wants you to be. Don't go into debt to do that. Just have a good time. We, when our boys were little, we would often make gifts. And they were simple. But they'd come from the heart. The boys would make mom something special. And it was, just, it was from their heart. It might not have been all that good. and might not have been all that useful. But it was from their heart. Those things are special. That's what Christmas is about. Giving of things out of our heart. So I challenge you, just try to reevaluate your own Christmas and see what God might have you to do there. You know, just as with the Jewish Purim, God said he wanted them to pass on this to the next generation. It was to be a memorial. And we must make sure that we pass on genuine facts of our faith to our children and our grandchildren. 
and find ways that we can do that. You know, the better we know the Bible, the better we'll be able to pass it on. And if God speaks to your heart and says, you know, you really don't know the book like you ought to, then just ask God to help you to dig in. If you need some help, come see me. I'm happy to help you. But we need to know this book. We need to know this book and to love this book and to meditate and memorize verses and be able to share it with the next generation and pass on our faith to others.